Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, and that is me. And I am wishing you a happy and healthy new year. We're kicking off 2023 with two conversations. First, an Apple mystery gadget update from reporter Wayne Ma, who covers Apple for the information and has new details about Apple's long-in-the-works virtual reality slash augmented reality headset, which he thinks will be out this year. Wayne is based in Asia. He's really plugged into Apple's supply chain. He's got interesting details about the device. But I think it was also useful for us to talk about the way Apple's thinking about this gadget, at least in the near term. They think this tech is the future, but not the near future. And that means whenever you see this thing debut, which again, could be this year and could cost $3,000, you're not really expected to go out and buy one. This is gonna be for hobbyists and developers and hardcore Apple nerds. So you should not expect to be getting one under the Christmas tree at the end of 2023. And then I talked to Jeremy Zimmer. He's the CEO of UTA. It's one of Hollywood's three big talent agencies about streaming economics and the way they're changing and the way he'd like them to change. Zimmer's been making a public push to change the way media companies pay his clients. Obviously, he wants them to get paid more because, as I note a few different times in this conversation, that is his job. But it's also an interesting commentary on the way media models shift and morph over time. I mean, a few years ago, not very long ago, less than a year ago, Netflix was never going to have ads, and now they do. So these things change over time, and that has downstream effects on the people who make your media. And that's the kind of thing we discuss on this media podcast. Enough of me talking. Here's Wayne Ma from The Information. I'm here with Wayne Ma from The Information. Uh, Wayne, welcome back. You were on a different podcast I did, uh, I think a couple years ago now, a Land of the Giants uh, episode we did in conjunction with you about Apple's work in China. Welcome back. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm having you on today because you have a blockbuster story for the information about Apple, this time about, I think they're calling it their, or you're calling it their mixed reality headset. This is the the futuristic space goggles uh, we have heard Apple has been working on for years. You believe, I think it's coming out this year and you have new details about it. Did I, did I summarize your story correctly? Yeah, that, that's about right. I want to get into some of the new stuff you found out about the goggles, but I just want some context here. We've known Apple is working on this headset. It's virtual reality and augmented reality, I think. For a while, we know they're sort of in a race with Facebook, which already has some of these devices on the market. What what does Apple want to do with these devices? What is their thrust here? Is this a complement to the iPhone in the same way that the AirPods and Apple Watch have been? Or do they think this is a whole new product that's a standalone important part of their company? Well, I think they see the headset as a stepping stone to augmented reality glasses, which unfortunately technology is just not there yet to make those type of glasses. So this is sort of kind of an in-between sort of solution. But one big difference between Apple and Meta's Quest uh, headsets is that it does do augmented reality and it has this kind of weird outward facing display 
uh, to kind of reduce the isolation that you would feel if you wore the headset and you were around other people. So I think a big thing with Apple was that they felt that VR headsets were just too isolating and uh, weren't very so social. You'll have the glass. You'll be wearing the glasses, but instead of me looking at you, and I, and I won't have the glasses. The headset, you mean? Yeah, the headset. Sorry, and I'll be able to see you, and and you'll be able, uh, and so it'll feel less weird for me watching you use the headset, and then you'll be more likely to use it. Am I getting right, that right? Yeah, exactly. So it's very different than VR. But I think that first point you made is is the crucial one. So what they're going to come out with this year, and you said I think you're expecting it's a three thousand dollar device. It's not the thing that Apple expects lots of people to use. It's sort of a, a temporary solution. Yeah, I mean, um, obviously, you know, people aren't going to be able to wear it, you know, all day like they keep their iPhone in their pocket all day. Uh-huh. Um, but at the same time, it offers developers and creatives a chance to kind of make content for it, uh, so that one day, eventually, when they have perfected the technology for glasses, you know, that content can be easily transferred over, or you get p- you, people used to wearing a headset device. Uh, you know, you develop a whole ecosystem for it. So, so one day, Apple and presumably others imagine that that putting on You'll be able to take something like, you know, a, a pair of Ray-Bans. This is sort of what we saw Meta try earlier, uh, I guess last year, two years ago. Time is a flat circle. But they'll be lightweight, and you'll be able to take them on and off, and you could wear them all day. That's not what this is. So this is an intermediate step. And so do they expect regular humans to buy this, or is it really just something that they expect developers to monkey around with? Well, based on the price, I don't see how they can expect uh, regular consumers to purchase it. But if you uh-huh. think about it, when the Macintosh first came out in 1984, it was $2,500 mm-hmm. in 1984 dollars. Yep. You know, that's more than $7,000 now. So a lot of people are comparing it to the, the Mac. Right. Know? That was a device for, I mean, all the, all the initial PCs, right, were for hobbyists um, and, and hardcore nerds who wanted to play around with that stuff. So that's, is that the analogy you think they're thinking about? Yeah, if you think about the Mac, you know, it brought uh, graphical user interfaces to the mainstream, right, with Windows and uh, and also the mouse, right? Nobody had used a computer mouse before. And so they see the headset, I think, as something like that more than maybe the iPhone. And one thing you talk about in your report is that your meta said, look, obviously, if this is something you'd want to use for games and, and we're working on that. It sounds like Apple is not planning on that, that they're not emphasizing games. Yeah, the headset seems very different than other headsets on the market in that it doesn't come with game controllers. You know, they haven't really... Uh, design game controllers for it. They don't really talk about gaming as a big part of their presentations. It seems more about productivity, telepresence, you know, communication, that that sort of thing. And 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 Meta is doing has been leaning into that too, right? Lots and lots of demos of of Mark Zuckerberg or uh, animated legless Mark Zuckerberg in conference rooms, saying this could be a work tool. And so Apple Apple imagines that same idea, but. They're not saying it's also a game device. They're saying this is something you'd want to use basically professionally. Right. That's correct. Okay. Very interesting. So what what is most important in, in your reporting? Um, you have a lot of new details here about what you think this device is going to be based on, I think, reporting from people who are helping build this stuff for Apple. What are some of the most important features that you've learned about? I think um, probably the most interesting thing is just how different it is from other headsets on the market today. Um, for example, it doesn't have a battery in the headset. It has a battery uh, pack that you wear on your waist with a cable. That seems very unApple like. You know, that was very surprising to me because it's kind of clunky and, and weird. Right, to right. Wear something um, around your waist while you're wearing something on your head. 
Yeah, and you know, Apple, they're known for their cable-free designs, right? The AirPods don't have mm-hmm. wires, <laughs> right? And so, you know, for me, it was hard to imagine that they'd actually have this cable connected to the headset. But at the same time, it makes sense, you know, if you want to swap the battery out and put a new battery in. And also, you know, maybe the battery the battery is likely just too heavy, you know, mm-hmm. given how much... Uh, and that's the other thing, is the processors in the headset are far beyond, far more powerful than anything that we have right now. You're wearing a computer on your head, right? We, we, we take for granted that, you, you know, a phone is a computer in your pocket. This is a computer on your head, but requires a lot of computing power and a lot of energy. And that's that's why you need some substantial battery for it. Right. Um, I tried a Magic Leap a few years ago, and I'm pretty sure that had something that was had to go on my waist as well. So it's not like Apple's the first one to do this. You just think it's very un-Apple-like for them to do it. Right, exactly. Uh, and what else should we be looking for when this thing comes out? Which, again, you believe is this year. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the displays uh, and the and how much you can see is very interesting, the optics. Uh, you know, one of the big issues with VR headsets is that everyone's eyes are different, are spaced differently apart. You know, everyone's eyes distance is unique. And so you have to make sure that the headset is aligned perfectly with those, with your eyeballs. And um, some headsets don't really have much ability to adjust. Others let you adjust by hand. You know, this headset will like do it automatically, you know, with small motors inside. Uh, that's pretty interesting, I think. Uh, I definitely think that this outward, outward-facing screen has never really been attempted before. Uh, that'll that'll be it'll be interesting to see, you know, how that fares. Uh, and um, yeah, like I said, the processors in it, you know, it's going to have uh, the same processor as the current MacBook Air, the M M two, and that creates just way more possibilities for content. Ex- explain why that why 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 that's significant. Um, just because you know most of the processors right now on. Uh, VR headsets are kind of like mobile class, you know, like like smartphone kind of class processors, and this is like a desktop, like a laptop processor. More heavy duty, right? Um, exactly. And, and 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 these are called mixed reality because you could do both VR and AR. Is that is am I am I getting that? Because I've, I've I, in the past, I think people have also used mixed reality. I think Magic Leap did this to describe what was an AR. Uh, yeah, augmented that's right. reality. So it, it, does Apple expect that you are going to go into a virtual world a la, you know, Meta's Horizons, or do they imagine you're going to walk around in a warehouse and see things both in real life and superimposed on your screen? Well, I think they want to do both. I think they want to emphasize AR, but, you know, that you will be able to change into VR. And there's actually a dial on the right side that you can turn to turn up the VR or turn down the VR. Uh, I heard part of it's for safety purposes. Uh, one of the big things that's very different is that the cameras are very high resolution. And so it'll almost be as if you're looking at the real world, you know, while wearing the headset, which is very different than, you know, the Quest Pro. You know, I, I don't own the Quest Pro, but what I hear is the cameras are very low resolution. There's lots of latency or lag between, you know, your movements and what you see on the screen. Um, and, um, and, and so Apple's will try to like, mimic uh, perfectly your vision, you know, while wearing it. So you've got, you're normally based in, in Asia for the information. You have deep uh, knowledge of the supply chain Apple uses. That's what we talked about uh, for our episode of Land of the Giants, either last year or the year before, whenever that came out. And so I assume you have, I assume all that reporting sort of informs what you're doing here. Do you also have a sense of sort of who Apple is working with in terms of software developers, uh, third-party software to sort of make stuff for this for the device? Do you think they'll do it all in-house? Do you have any insight into that? Yeah, so normally they don't talk to developers until very close to announcement. Um, I remember this with the iPad. They sort of gave everyone an iPad, a few people an iPad, really a couple months before the launch. And I think like the Wall Street Journal's one was locked to a a desk or something. Um, They say, here, go make something real quick. 
Yeah, I haven't heard that they've given uh, any uh, headsets to developers yet. It, mm-hmm. it may still be a while. They had been developing some of their own content um, in Culver City in Los Angeles. Uh, there was like a, a team there uh, codenamed Z50, and basically they were trying to do you know interactive AR experiences, you know, tied in with like Apple TV Plus. You know, they were enlisting Hollywood producers to help them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you know for all mankind, they released an app for that. You know, with some sort of augmented reality things. You know, for the iPhone and iPad. Uh, so there was that team that was trying to do these things in house and and they also hired people from you know like the special effects industry and from the video game industry as well for the team so right because when you launch this you have to have stuff that people can use immediately you right, can't right. Say, and they also they also acquired next vr which was this uh california company that you know streamed live events you know sports games in mm-hmm. vr and um you know there was talk that the reason why apple didn't when the NFL Sunday ticket rights and Google, you know, won them was because Apple wanted the rights to yet non-existent platforms, you know, likely for the headset. Yeah, I saw that reporting. And uh, if you can imagine, I'm raising my eyebrow at that because it seems not right to me, but we'll see. We'll see about that. I talked to your competitor, Mark Gurman from Bloomberg in 2021. He thought uh, a version of this was coming out in 2022. You now think it's 2023. Any idea uh, what the delays have been uh, on Apple's end? Yeah, there's a couple things. I think one is, at the end of the day, you have to balance the heat, the battery power, and the performance. And I think that it's just really tricky. And then, on top, and for the performance, you have to make sure that there isn't any lag between what you see on the screen and uh, you know your movements. And so, they, basically, it's just all those challenges of getting it to work right. And at the same time, you know, the hardware might be easy to make, but you know, the software has to be ready, right? It's all about the software. In you fact. reported that that Pegatron, uh, a big supplier, a big a, a big vendor for for Apple, has been making these things for some time now. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 assembling the device outside of Shanghai um, at the same complex where they build uh, iPhones and iPads. So, like you said, like just because the device is made doesn't mean that they can put it on the market because they need software for it. So, do you have a sense of when you think? This will be ready to, I don't know if it's going to be on shelves, but for Tim Cook to stand up somewhere and say, here, here it is, take a look. I mean, there's a couple of things they could do. They could uh, announce it at WWDC, which is in June. That's the uh, developer conference. Right, right. And then uh, put it out before the holidays, maybe give, get, you know, give time for some developers to use it you know, after it's been announced so they don't have to keep it secret anymore. Um, you know, The holiday season is usually when they really like to release uh, new products. Or they could just have a separate event for it as well uh some somewhere next year but again you know it's 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 also who knows <laughs> if, it'll, if it'll be announced next year or if it'll be delayed again you know it's already been delayed multiple times i'm trying to place this in the context of other apple releases you, you brought up the mac which you said was expensive at the time but it was also clearly what you know, at the time, Steve Jobs thought the future of computing was. It wasn't, here's the Mac, and one day it's going to be better and cheaper and faster. It's, here's the Mac, we want you to go buy it, and they were disappointed when it didn't sell that well. But here it sounds like they think it's both important, but they don't expect mass adoption of this thing out of the gate. Am I summing that up? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, you know, asking people to spend $3,000 on a product, you know, is is you know quite a bit of money but at the same time you know steve ballmer said the same thing about the iphone when it was first uh, announced in 2007. right i mean people will pay three thousand dollars for uh, for gadgets um peloton at one point was selling a lot of a lot of bikes that are now probably towel racks um, but people people do have the capacity to spend this stuff but it doesn't seem like apple from your reporting expects them to gravitate to this just because it's going to be not unfinished but just not sort of where they think the tech is ultimately going Right, right. It's definitely a first-generation project uh, or product. 
Okay, this is fascinating. Um, Wayne, I want to have you back someday to talk about all things Apple because because you're great. Um, that's why we did a whole episode with you. But for this, for now, I'm gonna say goodbye so you can get back to your reporting. Thanks very much, Peter. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks again to Wayne Ma. Uh, again, you can if you like hearing Wayne Ma speak, and you should, you should check out our Land of the Giants conversation from I'm gonna say 2021. That's what I'm pretty confident about. In a minute, we're gonna hear from Jeremy Zimmer, but first, a word from a sponsor. I'm with Jeremy Zimmer. He's the CEO of United Talent Agency. Welcome, Jeremy. Good to be here, and thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, you are doing a lot of stuff these days. As I'm speaking to you, just announced a, an acquisition of a literary agency. But I, I wanted to talk to you as, as a representative of the Hollywood community, um, and specifically because you have been on a bit of a campaign the last few months saying that that your your clients, talent, should be compensated differently and really better with regards to streaming, which is now sort of the de facto uh, model for Hollywood, at least for now. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about that. And I thought we could maybe just start off by letting you make your case, which you've made a couple times, but I in case our audience hasn't heard it, what is what is your, what do you think is wrong with the way talent is compensated today? And what do you want to see it move to? Well, let me, first of all, just modify sure. what you're saying, because I'm not saying you know, I'm not sitting here pounding my fist saying, we want more, we want more, this is unfair. What I am saying is, as we look at sort of the business and the evolution of our business and where, in terms of this, the, the streaming, you know, how the streaming universe has impacted our business, as we look at it evolving, what I see and what I, you know, what, what our clients feel is based on a couple of things, one of the things that was most attractive to our clients about Netflix was the fact that there was no advertisement, that it was this ad-free environment. So if that's going to change, shouldn't the dynamics of the deal change? The other part of the bargain was because there's no additional revenue, there's no need to have any additional back-end compensation related to performance because there's not going to be additional revenue related to performance. So let's 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 stop right there just so it's, the audience can understand it in case they don't. What you're talking about is for your biggest talent, they were able whether it was in TV or movies, they were able to claim some part of the the product's performance. They could say, "I'm going you're going to pay me this much and then with success, I'm also going to participate in the success of the television show or the movie if it goes into syndication and makes a lot of money, I'll see some of that. If the movie is sold into different markets and I own a piece of that, I'll see some of that." That's that's, that's the general contour yeah. of the deal. And in fact, it goes beyond our biggest talent. Obviously, uh -huh. the biggest talent would get the biggest piece of that back end. But for a lot of talent working on television shows or back ends, there was additional compensation related to the success of the show. So what we're saying is now that there is going to be additional revenue from advertising and the potential of additional revenue from secondary sales, i.e. when Netflix, if Netflix were to decide to take a show that they streamed and owned and sell it to another broadcaster for additional revenue, shouldn't people involved with that show, involved in the cre creation of that show or the stars of that show participate in some of that revenue? 
Right. And again, for context here, so what Netflix did when they showed up and mo- and started producing their own streaming, they said, there's not going to be syndication of our shows. We're going to make uh, Orange is the New Black. It's going to be on Netflix forever. There's no syndication sales. So we're going to pay you up front. We're going to pay you more than you might have gotten if you were doing a normal TV show, because we realize you're not going to see some of that back end. So we're going to pay more than the market would bear, at least back then. And that's the deal. And you're going to roughly work out whole. And in fact, it's better for you because there's no risk on your end talent, right? You don't care whether this show goes into five seasons or not. You're just going to get paid regardless. What a great deal for you. Isn't streaming great? And now you're saying, look, at least you're seeing a couple things. You're saying, one, that maybe is not the case anyway. Also, you are adding ads to this. So there's a new revenue stream. And even though you haven't said you're going to sell this stuff to other streamers or markets or whatever, we believe that that is going to happen. And so we think we should get a new deal. So I've asked you to explain your deal and now I'm explaining it for you. But am I summarizing this correctly? I think you've summarized it very well, probably better than I could have. And and let me modify, I'm sorry, this is not a Netflix-specific conversation. I'm using Netflix sort of as the placeholder for streamers, but it's just as relevant with Amazon or HBO or or any of the other you know major streamers. Right. We're talking about Netflix because they were the ones who sort of upended the table and said, here's right. the new system. Disney has followed suit, and as you mentioned, other folks are doing this as well. And initially, this was a... Com- People have had concerns about, we're just going to call it the Netflix model for some time. I've talked to people who say, look, it's not just the high-end folks like you're talking about. It's it's eviscerating a middle class of Hollywood talent that could reasonably expect to, to make money when a show had success down the line. And you're really upending it. And then you'd hear people from Netflix, but other folks saying, look, there's just a lot more work happening. This is the golden age. We're spending a ton of money creating shows. You shouldn't complain about this stuff. There's There's plenty of opportunity here for you. So, and I presumably you have gone to Netflix and the streamers in the past and made this argument. Have they ever shown any willingness to change the model? Um, you know, the conversations I've had with them over time predated their inclusion of advertising. Mm-hmm. You know, what I've always found Ted to be open-minded. It's Ted Sarandos. And thoughtful. Yeah, Ted Sarandos about, you know, the evolution of the business as well as the evolution of his business. I don't expect him to not be open-minded and thoughtful about how we might evolve. So, uh, you know, uh, to me, there's no, there's no bad guy. There's no good guy. There's just, you know, smart, thoughtful partners working together to deal with changes as they happen on the ground. And to be clear, your job is to represent your talent. You want the best deal for them. Your job is to, is to maximize whatever they want maximized, which is often money, but sometimes it's other stuff as well. So it's reasonable for you to go to them with these complaints, questions, concerns. And again, in the early days of streaming, when Netflix in particular was trying to persuade people to come work for them and make shows for an internet company, they probably had to overpay. I think by their own admission, they had to say, we're going to make it worth your while. We're going to assuage those concerns. But I think if you talk to them privately, they said, look, one day, we are not going to have to overpay. And one day, not only are we not going to have to overpay, but all the other streamers that are entering the market, they're going to consolidate. And eventually, there's going to be three or four or five uh, players standing. And this is the part they definitely wouldn't say out loud usually. And we're going to not have to enter these bidding wars to overpay folks. Is that part of your concern as well, that they are looking towards a future where there are fewer players in the market and they don't have to be as, uh, as accommodating? You know, I hadn't even thought of that. But now now that you mentioned it, I'm really getting nervous. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, 
I think there's cycles in our industry and in cycles of consolidation, the people who survive or who, uh, you know, become the consolidator always think there's going to be all kinds of cost savings, not only with the people they can extract out of their own combined organizations, but also with the pricing pressure, the the pricing power that they're going to have, whether it's with talent or toilet paper. Mm-hmm. The consolidators always think, oh, yeah, we're going to put everything together and then we're going to be able to buy everything for cheaper. And that usually lasts for a fairly short period of time because ultimately the consolidator, there's new competition. The competition rises up from the seeds that are planted as a result of the consolidation. So, you know, anybody who's been in our business for a long time sees that this cycle is consistent and inevitable. So I'm not overly worried about their having some sort of long-term pricing power. In the short term, they may. On the other hand, you know, we're very fortunate to live at sort of the top of the funnel with very, very premium talent and very, very premium projects. And there's always a market for premium projects and premium talent. And there's always a very robust market for for that kind of talent. So I'm not particularly worried about that. It's always nice to have more buyers and particularly when more buyers are healthy, it's always a good environment. But we find that if you have undeniable talent, undeniable content, you usually can do just fine for everybody. That said, in the last year, Wall Street has told Netflix and everyone who was chasing Netflix and streaming saying, hey, you know how we told you to go rack up as many subscribers as you can, spend as much as you need to, don't worry about uh, losing money, that's fine. Uh, They said, actually, we'd like you to make a profit. Uh, they're now very concerned about that. Um, publishing a chart tomorrow showing the amount of money all the all the would-be Netflixes are losing, chasing Netflix. Are they coming back to you and saying, "Look, look, we're trying to spend less on production, not not more. We're not trying to give you more of the pie. We're trying to conserve more of it. Look at what Wall Street is doing to us." Do they give you that response? Well, they certainly come back and say, "Look, we really got to look at you know rationalizing some elements of our business." But my bet is they'll look at other parts of what they're doing. If I were them, which I'm not, but I would be scrutinizing the volume of product as opposed to the price I pay for premium product. I think that the price you pay for uh, the Crown or White Lotus or any of the shows that really drive conversation and value and brand can't really be high enough. So So, I think I would imagine they will look at, do we really need, you know, 15, you know, sort of uh, cocaine warlord television shows? Maybe three is enough. mm -hmm. And I think they'll look at sort of that broad array. And I think they'll also look at the way they're organized and structured in terms of, you know, perhaps a little bit more of a uh, controls on some of the elements of the way they make decisions. Yeah, and I think they've been fairly clear saying, look, we're going to make less stuff. Um, no, no, no one's saying we're going to make crappier stuff. No one's even saying we're going to make um, cheaper stuff necessarily. And so you mentioned White Lotus. Mike White is the creator. You represent him. You don't expect that uh, Warner Brothers Discovery is going to go, we love that you made these shows and we'd like you to make more, but we're going to pay you less. Yeah, or can you make them in Cleveland? Because we think that you know you, Cleveland's just as good as... Uh, as Sicily and and uh, it would you know we'd save a lot of money. No, I don't think so. I think they're gonna. I think they would like Mike White to make as many White Lotus episodes as possible for as long as possible. 
is there a difference in the discussions you're having with the Netflixes of the world? And well, there's, there's Netflix, then there's the traditional media companies, and then there's a different group that's Apple and Amazon, basically, which are tech companies that happen to make uh, television and don't seem to have real constraints on their spending. Do you have different conversations with, with the pure tech folks as opposed to the more traditional media companies? Well, they, you definitely have different conversations with the traditional media companies than you do with the streamers because the traditional media companies are trying to solve multiple concerns and multiple business lines that are that used to all be somewhat aligned and now are somewhat fragmented and, and how they're going to figure out where they should be putting their dollars and how they should be concentrating their focus, I think, is a challenge for the traditional media companies. For the new the new guys, the tech streamers, they seem to have less concerns about that and more focused on, you know, what what is the right amount of product and what is the right mix of product for us to have on our streamers. So do you imagine that the tech folks will be more amenable to accommodating your concerns than a traditional media company that has that really does have to account now in, in 2023 for all the pennies they're spending and has to eventually tell shareholders what they're spending on this, whereas an Apple, this is a black hole, basically. Yeah, I mean, look, I think, you know, Apple's had their their stock price has been, you know, massively reduced, Netflix, mm -hmm. obviously. Everybody is, is, is laboring under reduced stock prices and the concerns that come with that. But... Amazon and Apple, they have these whole other businesses that are really what they're about. So it, it's, it's, it's less directly concerning, potentially. Not to belabor this, but I will. You represent your clients. That makes sense. Uh, I understand why you're doing what you're doing, why you want to do what you want to do. If you're someone who watches TV, who watches, who subscribes to these shows, subscribes to these networks, watches them free, whatever, what's at stake? Should you care about about how someone's being compensated and whether or not they're they should participate in the advertising revenue stream, but they're not being cut in on that? Well, first of all, yes, I do represent our clients, but I think we, you know, the, I think the significant representatives of talent have a real stake in this conversation because a healthy ecosystem is better for everybody. If you're a consumer sitting at home, should you care? I think you, what you want is you want your streamers to be healthy so they can afford to continue to bring you the best stuff, the shows you love, and that they don't have to start cutting back on the quality of the shows that are made or the amount of episodes that are created in order to uh, you know, uh, reduce costs and potentially help their stock price. Has anyone proposed anything that's truly sort of novel and out of left field that you said, oh, I'd never thought about that, but let me think about that? Or is everyone sort of working from the same playbook? Well, no one's really proposed anything so far. I think people, it, it, this is an interesting time and, and a time where, you know, part of why I'm being as ver vocal as I am is I feel like we're all sitting here sort of staring at this big wall of problems and going, oh boy, we got a lot of problems. And how are we going to, you know, how are we going to cost cut our way out of this? And I don't think that is the answer. I think the way you get out of this is through innovation, is through, you know, dynamic dialogue, is through putting, you know, smart people in rooms to figure out, you know, mutually beneficial solutions. You know, I'm not sitting here saying, you know, Netflix is bad. They've taken advantage of our clients. No, no, no. Netflix was great. 
and our clients have loved the Netflix experience. But in order for us to continue to have that experience, we should all figure out what's the best what's the best solution going forward into this next phase of our industry as as streaming has evolved to become such a critical component of it. There is an upcoming negotiation with the Writers Guild. Can you talk about that and how that fits into sort of your discussion here? And, and I assume it affects the timing of, of these, of this sort of, I'm going to call it a campaign, of the campaign you're, you've embarked on here. You know, I, I think the Writers Guild, you know, I've, I've not always loved the Writers Guild and the, the tactics they utilize or some of the f- fights they choose to have. I think uh, the fights they choose to have right now having to do with the impact of streaming and the shorter orders and, all, and, and how that impacts the sort of working writer, I think is a really valid and important concern. On the other hand, I think this broader issue of, of additional revenue from external sources and the long, the long value, the long you know, the, the long-term value of the shows that are created is sort of a different issue and it's not necessarily affixed to everybody on every show. But I think they're both really valid concerns. And what I would hope is that rather than sort of this, you know, incredibly damaging uh, kind of histrionic battle, we could have sort of a broader, more universal solution that we're looking for. How do you think about future-proofing this sort of thing? I remember... I'm going to get the timing wrong, but I think it was probably uh, 08, there was a a writer's strike. um, And a lot of the concern there was, hey, things are happening on YouTube and on the internet, and we'd like to get paid for this digital work. And at the time, uh, most of the media companies could truthfully say, there's no money coming in from digital. There's nothing to share with you. It's, you know, YouTube isn't paying us anything. Uh, And we don't know what the future is going to look like. And it doesn't make sense to do a deal when we don't know how any of this is going to look like, uh, what this is going to look like. And technically, they were accurate, right? Uh, The models have, have changed multiple times. Presumably, they will change again down the line. So how do you structure deals, whether it's with guilds or with media companies that say, look, this is what the world looks like in 2023. We need to find some way that if the model changes again in two years or five years, that that we can have room to, to be compensated fairly then. I think the only future proofing you have is that ultimately, you know, mutually, uh, mutually approved self-destruction or whatever that expression is, does no one any good. And I think that historically what we've done is, you know, Everybody gets upset, and then ultimately we can get into a place where we have smart and you know innovative solutions that seem to work for a period of time, and that's just that's that to me is kind of what we're looking at is you know the world's changed, theatrical market's different, the cable bundle is is eroding rapidly, streaming isn't the Valhalla that everyone thought it would be, although it's a very very strong business. Advertisers are relevant again and are going to continue to be relevant. There may become a secondary, a syndication market that had been uh, sort of tossed aside. All of these factors go into a process of deciding what's going to make sense for this next period of time. What's the mood in? In let's 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 pull out from your business, uh, your your specific business. What's what's the mood right now in Hollywood? Bob Iger, when he was in between when he was CEO of Disney and when he was CEO of Disney again last fall, said something to the effect of like, 
look, the traditional uh, bundle is is falling off a cliff. A lot of these media companies are in permanent decline. It's it's really uh, terrifying for a lot of the the industry. Did you did that sync did that sync up with what you're feeling and seeing? I mean, again, I'm I'm you know maybe I'm not as uh, maybe I'm too optimistic. But I've been around long enough to go, oh, I remember this conversation happening around video cassettes, you know, DVDs, cable television. I mean, I remember HBO opened up and HBO was like, oh, my God, and all the studios were going to kill HBO. And then suddenly Columbia made a big output deal with HBO and it was great for Columbia. So, you know, you just don't know. But I, I do know there's a, you know, yes, people are definitely feeling gloomy, but the world's gloomy. You know, I don't think our, I don't think we're only gloomy because of what we're facing in the industry. I think the world is a, is a gloomy place. And, uh, you know, we're looking at a myriad of problems. And if you, you know, open a newspaper, which are these things that used to have, people used to have. Familiar you, with them, yeah. You know, look at your phone and the feed. And it's just like, you just go, oh my God, this is just a, a nightmare. On the other side of that, is wow, more people than ever seem to be watching television, talking about television, consuming media, watching sports, listening to music. I mean, the growth and the power of the product is unbelievable and is more influential on a global basis than it's ever been before. And as a result of that incredible growth, there are questions and concerns that need to be addressed and managed. And that's the place we're in. Yeah, I guess we're it doesn't, not, it doesn't behoove you as an agent and, to. It is rapid. I guess it doesn't behoove you to say the world's terrible, everything's uh, going badly. Uh, well, it doesn't you, behoove you as an agent. It doesn't behoove you as a person. Correct. I mean, unless you're, by the way, unless you're a reporter, because people love to read about the latest, you know, bomb cyclone or whatever the hell it is. But the truth is, there's so much other stuff going on and so many other ways to look at it. So you're saying you'd like to read about something other than Twitter, uh, which I'd agree. like to read. I mean, although I, you know, enjoy somewhat the Twitter fiasco because, uh, you know, I'm that kind of person, but I don't necessarily need to read about bomb cyclones and all the, you know, the the horrible certainties that are coming towards us. Let me finish by just asking about your your business now specifically. I said you guys announced this acquisition uh, today, recording on Wednesday. You bought a literary agency. You've been buying uh, various assets here and there. You bought MediaLink, which if you've been to Cannes or, or CES uh, and kissed Michael Casson's ring, you know what MediaLink is. I have kissed that ring. Um, I kissed it so many times I decided to buy it. You had to buy it. Um, God bless Michael Casson for selling the same thing twice. Do you, your competitors um, are bulking up in different ways. They're merging with each other, or in the case of Endeavor, they've gone out and just bought uh, uh, an entire sport, right? They bought UFC. Is there a reason you have not sought out a, a, a big merger or a big acquisition? Or maybe you have, and I just don't know about it. You know, we, I think we've done 15 or 16 acquisitions mm -hmm. over the last 10 years. Uh, really, what we've been trying to do is anticipate and either build or acquire the capabilities for our clients. Like what is our client going to want to do? And then, you know, how do we be a place where if you're an athlete and you love esports, we can serve your interest in esports while you're, you know, pursuing your career on the field. Or if you're a musician and you want to build a brand, how can we build that cape? How can we help you bring that to life? You know, that's 
that's kind of been our thing is what are the opportunities and needs and interests of talented, creative, thoughtful, uh, influential people going to be over the years? And how do we build an organization that can serve those needs? And I think that's that's the path we've been pursuing. Um, we're a lot bigger than we were 10 years ago. CA is as well. So is WME. And uh, I think there's been so much, you know, going back to the growth and explosion of all media across all genres and types has been so massive. It's created a real opportunity for agencies and a real need for agencies to grow and expand. Jeremy Zimmer, you literally have the corner office, I can see from the Zoom here. Sorry, from the Riverside. Well, our, biz, our office has so many corners, it's unbelievable. I have one of many, many corner offices. Thank you for, for giving me some virtual time from your corner office. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Jeremy Zimmer. Thanks again to Wayne Ma. Thanks to Travis and Jelani. Really nice to hear them on the podcast last week, wasn't it? They're great. Um, they produce and edit the show. Thanks to our sponsors who bring you this show for free. Still, it's still free. And thanks to you guys for listening and writing. Thanks for your mailbag questions. Uh, I'm wondering if we should bring those back on a recurring basis. Okay, this is Recode Media. We will see you next week. <laughs>